All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Questlove Supreme. I'm your host, Questlove Supreme. With me, we have the strongest, the strongest team in the land. Of course, Team Supreme. Are you walking on the moon right now, Sugar Steve? That's correct. Yes, the moon. Mm -hmm. That's where you're at. Okay, you're walking on the moon. Uh, We also got uh, Laia with us. What up, Questlove Supreme? How are you doing? I said, is this the name now? What'd you say? <laughs> oh, because you was like, welcome to Questlove Supreme. I am Questlove Supreme. Yes, you are. And yes, oh, you are. I, I, oh, yes, you I, are. I concur. I embodied the entire... Sorry. Yes. No, nah, you good. That's what it nah, is, like, sir. Sorry. Uh, I know. Lai Ly- is working uh, extremely hard. Uh, future episodes, we're getting ready for another round of, of in-person episodes for the for uh, Questlove Supreme. So, you know. Oh, yeah. LA edition. Yes. It's it's going to be exciting, Fontigolo. Ah, what's going on, man? What's going Dropping, on? Dropping uh, new bombs on us, man. I, hey. I gotta say, yeah, man. Thank you. Where, where did this come from? What you know? You, you gotta you gotta enlighten me. Where 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 did this uh, the spark of an idea come from? Who and I? You know, we just been for the last couple of years been working really hard, like on the documentary, uh, and then also you know planning a block party made in Durham, mm-hmm. uh, October seventh. Um, but uh, but nah, man, we just. I miss the chair, bro. I miss being in the chair. I miss recording. And so um, we was just like, yo, let's just go cook up. Like, we just wanted to have some fun and just, you know, let them go. Those records, they're out now. Wish Me Well, Glory, Glory is out on all platforms. But those records ain't even, they ain't even three weeks old. Maybe a little over two weeks old. Like, they fresh, fresh. We just finished. Wow. Fresh, fresh out the oven. All right. That's what's up. And that's just exciting to me. That's more exciting than recording something and waiting for, like, you know, however long, waiting a year. The cycle to get it done. Nah, bro. Cook it up, let it go. That's what's up, man. Yo, today's going to be an awesome episode. I will say that for the, oh, wow, six, for the last six decades, our guest has literally been the heartbeat of Jersey City's finest musical unit. Jersey City's probably the most diverse unit. They pretty much changed 
music numerous, numerous times, kind of going through a, a, a metamorphosis period, really not afforded to any artist, maybe close to Miles Davis in terms of going through different phases. Of course, you know, their late 60s, early 70s soul phase, and then we got the mid-70s funk phase, and then exploding into the disco scene, adjusting to it well, well enough for to garner them a Grammy album of the year nod for their participation in the inescapable mammoth soundtrack for Saturday Night Fever. And then riding off successfully into the 80s with uh, just an unprecedented streak of really perfect dance pop classics. In, in my opinion, this unit known as Cool and the Gang is, is, is the dream as far as legacy is concerned, like dabbling in many genres. And, and of course, with this being the hip hop's 50th anniversary and uh, our brother, uh, lovingly known as Funky George, being part of the unit, that's probably the most sampled. I didn't realize that Cool Gang is the most sampled band in hip hop. That's an honor. So that means that they also changed hip hop. Well, we have him here today. Um, we hope to go through his history and his legacy. The one and only Funky George. Funky George Brown of Cool and the Gang. Welcome to Quest Love Supreme. How you doing? Nice to be here, Chris. Great to have you. Where are you talking to us right now from? Where, where are you? I'm where in you uh, Woodland Hills, California, the Valley. Okay. Yeah, you know, Calabasas, Tarzana, that area. Woodland Hills. So literally Hollywood swinging. How how long have you been out there? I've been here 37 years. You know, my, my band members would actually say, when you're coming back home, when you're coming back to Jersey, you know, so it was it used to be a running joke. But uh, love it out here. Right before the pandemic, we were privy to a series of uh, animated shorts that basically told... Uh, the story of the band's origins in their very beginning before they got a record deal, these little animated um, yeah. interstitials. And to me, that was one of the most, at least as, as a, as a music head, that was a, one of the most incredible things I've ever seen because, you know, a lot of the favorites that we grow up with really aren't afforded much information, especially for like groups in the seventies and eighties. Like you guys aren't given the fair level playing field of your, you know, your, your peers that get access to mainstream press. So I knew nothing about the history of the band. You guys were like rigorously honest about your beginnings. Um, I didn't know that, you know, when we're talking about cool in the gang, that cool was like a leader of a gang, you know, most, most, <laughs> most bands I know start in church and all that stuff. So, well, first of all, where, where were you born? I assume that is Jersey city. I don't know. I could be wrong. Jersey no. city, New Jersey. Okay. That's where you were born. Yes, sir. So you were first generation Northeast family. Most most soul acts I know come from the South and then they migrate up North. But you were born in Jersey City. Born in Jersey City. Okay. So could you just give me a description of what uh, Jersey City was like for you in your childhood, um, at least for those formative years before you started uh, discovering your talent? You know, we're going back 150 years, you know. So <laughs> It's kind of hard to, for me to remember, you know. Hey, well, uh, what what you can remember? Really, the blacksmith, shorting north, the shoes. Yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, and the guys pumping the water when there was a fire. 
because uh, it's so <laughs> long ago. But um, Sugar, he's in Jersey. He's in Sugar uh, Steve, right? Ho- Ho- Hoboken, uh-huh. uh, Jersey City and Hoboken were very uh, uh, alike at that time. Jersey City being the second largest city in New Jersey, it was a uh, basically a, a working class town. Mm-hmm. Quiet working class town. I got I got to put more respect on Jersey because I think you know I mean I'm I'm not a New Yorker even though I've been here long enough to kind of claim it. I think I should be here for 20 years before I say I, I'm a New Yorker. But you know a lot of times even as a Philadelphian, Jersey's just like over there. You know from New York, Jersey, Jersey's the, the, over there. The amount of talent that came out of Jersey City and New Jersey is mind boggling. I mean, you got Count Basie, just for one. Mm-hmm. Frank Sinatra, you know, Savon. Uh, this, this is Jersey City or just Jersey? This is just Jersey. But okay. out of Jersey City, too, you, you got people like Nick Adams, Brenda Vercaro, Cool and the Gang, uh, Roy Hamilton. It just goes on and on and Roy on. Hamilton? Roy Hamilton's Don't Jersey. let go of Roy Hamilton. Okay. Yeah. So there's a plethora of talent that came out of Jersey City proper. The Duprees, the uh, uh, the Spellbinders. Okay. Yeah, it goes, you know. I know those names. And and, and those, you know, like if you, if you count Duke by himself, mm-hmm. I mean, we wouldn't be playing anything if it was not for a, a Duke Ellington, you know. So it's, a, it's, an, it's amazing. No Frank Sinatra, you know, they, they came with it. How old were you when you discovered your uh, talent for the drums? I um, I think it discovered me. It discovered me because, you know, I tap on a table with spoons and forks, you know. I just took it to the next level, just intuitively. I just took it and said, hey, you know, uh, let me go take some lessons. But mind you, we were so poor that... Uh, uh, we could only afford a couple of lessons at $3 a lesson. So I, there was a gentleman named Joe. He used to play behind the Sorrells. I went to him up on Newark Avenue in Jersey City. And he like, sit down here. It's a practice pad. All right, take these sticks. Show me something. And uh, it wasn't a match. It was a standard grip. It wasn't a match grip. And mm-hmm. he said, hey, you're, you're pretty much a natural. And uh, second lesson, three bucks, and I got the Buddy Rich 16-century rudiment book and and took it from there. And from that point on, you know, it's like uh, by the time I reached uh, 13, 14, I met Ronald Bell and Robert Mickens and Ricky Westfield, and we started the Jazz Birds because we're all deep into jazz at the time, which is a, a, a main foundation of Cool in the Gang. So John Coltrane, Charlie Parker, uh, Lee Morgan, uh, Buddy Rich, you know, all the all the jazz greats at that time, you know, we were into. And we'd sit and listen to all those jazz albums. So at the time, though, and assuming that this is the early 60s or mid 60s, you know, were you aware of the pop landscape or the soul landscape? We were totally aware of, you know, what was happening pop-wise and what was happening jazz-wise. Because uh, 
we would do little soirees and we'd have to play the music of the day. You know, nobody wanted to hear uh, Bag's Groove. They didn't want to hear that the kids. They wanted to hear the, the hunter gets captured by the games. Boom, 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 all that stuff. So we knew that too. Yeah, I was going to say that, you know, for our listeners that don't know that, you know, in, in the early period of jazz, which was more danceable, then this virtuoso phase starts where the music gets faster and it's more about the solos and kind of more about sit down and watch us play as opposed to like us being a, a wedding band or a jukebox per se. But, you know, every one of my heroes and idols in funk music that tells me about their beginnings in jazz, most of them sort of had a condescending attitude towards soul and pop music. But I know that you guys were younger, so you weren't like looking down on it because you guys were teenagers. But I mean, how common was it for and having heard, like, especially like the jazz chops on the first two records, you guys were still teenagers. How common was it for teenagers to be that, to have that virtuoso level of musicianship during that time period? The kind words of being virtuoso. It wasn't common at all. You know, what happened also was that um, we played almost nightly, and Newark would play at the. Uh, the Blue Note in Newark would play uh, Tuesday through Sunday, 9 p.m. to 2 a.m. And what we were playing was all the popular music at that time mm -hmm. uh, and behind different artists. In uh, Bayonne, New Jersey, pretty much the same at the Kenya Club. There were five, six acts that we played behind each evening. So we would be getting our pop chart, sharpening them, honing our skills, and, and loving jazz and learning, you know, the, all the bebop scales and just hanging out that way. So that that's how we grew. We work in those clubs nightly and, mm -hmm. and go to school. What's the rehearsal process like? Because, again, you guys were a tight unit and really intricate. Which, so I assume that a lot of rehearsal went behind that. Like, what's the rehearsal schedules like? Well, the rehearsal for the, the, uh, the pop groups was just, you know... They come up, they, they want their music done a certain way. Uh, and basically, it's really close to the um, the record itself. So we pull that off and keep the arrangements exactly like they were for Motown uh, or, you know, all the Atlantic sound. Uh, for what we did, as far as jazz was concerned, uh, if we were going to play Take Five, we sit down and go through it, or Milt Jackson's, Bags groove. The rehearsal process was easy flow. You know, Cleese would take out his horn, you know, and, and in that process also, we in, we came up with our own music. Okay. You know, but we would listen to everyone on the scene, pop, jazz, funk, country, and uh, rehearsals were easy. It's just, we come in and say, let's do this, and we get at it, and it'd come out. You were such a, a, a large, sizable unit. How are you guys managing, like, getting to gigs? Like, we live in an era now where, you know, there's a thing called a rider, and, you know, there, there are companies that you rent your equipment from. But Pack them, stack them, unpack them, and stack them. 
Yeah, I know, I know, uh, No, we uh, brought in our own equipment. Right. We set it up. Uh, we've had our little uh, rehearsal. to see if everything was on par as uh-huh. far as it working. And um, we had no no crew whatsoever. Uh, and, and even in the early days, uh, the beginning, I think we had two guys, uh, Donald Boyce, who became the voice, the voice of Jungle Boogie. Yeah, I was going to say. And, and, and Bobby Sims. And those two guys were a riot, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, so um, that was it. I mean, you know, now it's a whole different ball game. Right. But, uh, you said you were still in school during this time? We were going to school. As in high we're, school? They were like 15, 16. We were going to school and working in the clubs. Oh, wow. That was key. What's your parents saying during this time? Were they just supportive from the jump? Or how did that uh, work? We had our parents, all of our parents were very close to each other. And uh, it's, it's just like um, a gut feeling. Like They had the gut feeling. Mm-hmm. So did we. It was just these, our children are going to make it. And right. uh, sure enough, I mean, of course. But uh, we put that time in. And they allowed us to do. During that time, I was also I was playing with other people, uh, up in the Catskills, and you know, uh, playing blues, you know, mm-hmm. with other artists, and so I just learned. I used to play with a guy named uh, a gentleman named Duke Washington, all over New York City. He played tenor sax, he, electrified tenor saxophone player, mm-hmm. you know, and electrified. Alexis saxophone. So he would say, listen, Papa, when I play, that means all the band members come to the stage, you know, because he's from that he's from that era that we just got finished talking about, you right. know, the 12 years of big band and all that, mm-hmm. you know. So you hear that. And me being young, I had to stay in the dressing room or outside in those mm-hmm. cold New York nights or sitting in the car, yeah. It was tough, but uh, I think that's how you you know you, people horn their skills, and uh, you really show the the intense uh, the intensity of the love that you have for the music. Even today, we speak of the music, you know. Right. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black Stories, Black Truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. 
In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. How did you avoid the kind of gang mentality that pretty much what it seems like, according to those uh, those shorts, that everyone but your band somehow didn't avoid? In the, in the early stages, we were always rehearsing. The gangs in the area, we, we avoided we avoided, we were practicing. And myself, I've even had uh, physical fights with some of the, the gang members who came out of Jamesburg and uh, the like, you know, like they would call it the King of Jamesburg and he's back in the schoolyard taking over the schoolyard. You know, these are like mm-hmm. major gangs. But you see, in my life, I didn't care about anybody being a gang member. And if they step to me, I'm going to try to knock you out. And, and, and what happened was, I got, I can go in schoolyard, nobody, not touching me. This is before the martial arts went, entered your life. That's crazy. Well, I'm a second degree black belt martial arts. Second degree black yeah, belt. Yeah. Yes, sir. Rest respect. Cool's gang is his, uh, the leader of the gang, I forgot his name, Eagle. And I came downtown. And uh, we got into an altercation, same deal, because I'm from the Midtown, uh, I'm from Bergen, Lafayette, Lafayette. What, what, mm-hmm. I, what I did, and cool, would tell the story, I took a bicycle and beat him with a bicycle. Oh. <laughs> that, that was it. Jesus Christ, the survival Bam. tactics. Done. That's what, you got it. Bam. Yeah. yeah. Bam. No, a chair no, ain't no, got nothing on you. No, yeah. more, no more bothering George Brown. Ooh. Wow. That's uh okay. <laughs> I I got the answer to that question. <laughs> I was expecting that one. <laughs> I don't even know what a double black belt is, but I'm I'm impressed and yeah. scared at the same time. I don't want to find ready. out either. So you yeah. know, beat somebody well, with a bike. I don't think you're gonna have no problems. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How long was it before you guys solidified your deal with Delight Records and? If you can, I mean, I've heard a lot about uh, what's his name, Fred Fred uh, Vicaroto. 
the the president. Fred Vigorito, Fred Fiodo, Gabe Vigorito. So once once and for all, can you can you verify or not if if they were were the people you did not play with? If you that's what I want to know with names like that, and I don't (laughs) want to play you know monolith or stereotype, but were they uh? Era. They were friends very, of ours, I, you know. Actually, they were very, very sweet and good people. Because if they liked what you were doing, they gave some type of uh, uh, reward for it. Uh, they made sure that things were safe. You can just spend time in the studio developing, and and they heard it and saw it and, and knew the degree of talent of the band. But it's just like the bicycle; they uh, they were the bicycle. If you know what I mean. Ah. Once we we signed with them, they were the bicycle. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to ask later about the the uh, the origins of Jungle Boogie. They sort of figure out they were. No, I got it. Oh no, I got it. I just wondering if they were the bicycle in business too. Like, were they fair to you guys at the end of the day? They were the bicycle in business as well. Mm. Uh, Okay. mm, mm. I'm I'm only asking that because um, Robert tells this this crazy uh story of how how he puts it about how you guys were quote unquote forced to come up with jungle boogie sort of against your will oh yeah it was it was like force it was um mental block time mental block time for creating music <laughs> so are <Can> <laughs> you tell me the, your version of the story yeah it's going to it's going to mess with his okay so uh, we went up to uh, the office of the attorney uh, at the time. Today, he's the, like the number one attorney for uh, the entertainment business in the world. I'm not going to mention his name, right? Okay. So uh, Dennis, myself, Khalees, and Cool went up to see him. And uh, I can say what he said, though. Uh, he said, listen, guys, we just need some effing hits. He <laughs> said, I don't care how much genius you are and how many instruments you play. And he looked at his watch, who was probably a Patek Philippe, and said, my wife's waiting for me at the airport. Goodbye. And we he walked out. So Dennis went one way. Ronald, Cool, and myself were walking together and said, we got to come up with something. And sure enough, Going to Baggy's, it's not that, I'm quite sure it's not that, Baggy's uh, rehearsal studio in New York on uh, like the 30s on the west side. And um, we started coming up with uh, this music, Hollywood Swinging Mm -hmm. was one, where Ricky Westfield came in and said the idea. Then we were over at Holoquin, which is a 40, another rehearsal studio, like 45th Street upstairs over Howard Johnson's. Right, really cheap studio. Oh, in Manhattan. In Manhattan, yeah. Near where uh, SIR used to be. Okay, I see. I know yeah. where that is. Yeah, and uh, we came up with uh, Jungle Boogie. Uh, we were uh, playing it. Khalees, it was we had Jungle something, but it was right. Dennis Thomas that came in, and when he heard the track, he said, "We're calling it Jungle Jim." Blah 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 blah, and, and he said, "No man, people are boogieing. Let's call it Jungle Boogie." Right, bingo, done, wrapped up. That that's the story. Uh, can you uh, can you verify that? Well, uh, 
kind of what Ronald told me was basically that that the the heads of delight were sort of like mesmerized by you know what was slowly morphing into to, to New York dance night culture. Yeah, and they heard Soul Makosa. <laughs> Of which, you know, I guess either they acquired a copy and was basically like, we want our version of this song. And you guys were like, no, we were serious musicians. We're not playing this mumbo jumbo. Absolutely. No, we love Soul Makusa too. Okay. Mama Cool, Mama okay. We love it as well. But okay. they were going to bring in other producers. And Kalisa and I said, no, they're not. And uh, we went and did. We got funky stuff out of it and all that. Eh? So we got Hollywood Sprinkle, Jungle Boogie, and funky stuff all in one package. So you can't beat that. Khalif Gamble was just telling me, because he follows you guys um, with video. He's a, a, a videographer. And he was saying that the rooms that he's seen you guys change with Jungle Boogie, I'm talking about the whitest, most Southern, like, it just breaks. It's, that's the one song that just changes everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it, it changed a lot. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. That's in- especially because it's called Jungle Boogie. I just think the irony in it is kinda... well, you know, it's, well, it's primitive exotic. So. It's got jazz. It's got the ground rhythms that I was playing and Cool was playing, and you know, and you got that the, the horns playing uh, uh, contrary motion, and you got to have the going going down the other way. You know, uh, that's that's uh, in jazz, but you hear that a lot of classical music when the strings mm-hmm. are going one way, and then you hear the cellos going down. The whole different, it just opens it up, you know. And then you got a guy going, you know, which right. which, uh, which was novel. That also made that record what it was. You know it, what it is t- still today. So, can you also settle a question I've been dying to ask you guys, or someone from the organization? I mean, yeah, one could say that because all the albums were made at the same studio, of course they would sound similar. But were at least for that first album, the Keep On Bumping album, were you guys really the KGs? No. no. So the KGs were their own self-contained unit and... Their own self-contained unit. What happened was Khalees was producing them. So okay. you're going to get you're going to get a little of that cool of the gang sound. Uh, with us, we we changed studios. We were at um, uh, the House of Music in Jersey. Uh, the first records were done uh, across the street from uh, Studio 54. The Beatles recorded there. Dionne Warwick, Burt Becker, everybody recorded there. Okay. Uh, so, you know, we did mix studios, but the keep on bumping, you got to keep on bumping. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that, that was all done by, uh, uh, with, uh, Amir. Amir Beyond. Amir Beyond. Yeah. yeah. Is he a bell as well? Is he related to the bells? They're, they're brothers. Yeah. Were all of you Muslim or just the, just between Ronald and. Ronald, cool. Uh, Amir. Kaita Smith, okay. Uh, well, we're Muslim, uh, but that that didn't get in the way. When we did our prayer circle at night, I mean before the concert, didn't matter if you were saying, you know, Alhamdulillah or praise mm-hmm. God. It, it didn't matter, mm-hmm. you know, because we were going out to do the thing and make people happy, uh, and we all understand that God is God. We should probably mention when we're talking about Ronald, and you you call him Khalees. I call him Khalees. 
Khalees. Well, right? I, I just want to know for the people who are watching and listening, oh, like that's yeah, what we're Ronald talking about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, back in the day, I'd call them both Khalees, Ronald, Ronald Bell, you know, Ronnie, yeah. you know. But <laughs> uh, all that faded away when we got ready to pray and go ready, get ready to get on stage. It, it didn't affect. It didn't affect who and what we were because, you know, Khalees and Cool and Charles were developed psychologically enough to understand that, you know, there's only one God and God is God. Mm. No matter what is water. What we call him. Right, right. Water is water. Maurice White shares a story about pre-last days in time, earth, wind, and fire. Maybe pre-head to the sky, earth, wind, and fire. Um, you know, occasionally they would meet like in different audiences that weren't familiar with them and either get a cold reception or, you know, just get outright booed or whatnot. Maurice White tells these, these stories of like uh, coming to Philadelphia and, you know, literally getting the worst treatment from the audiences. But are you guys meeting at all? Like any sort of indifference or like, how are you guys handling different territories that's outside of your tri-state area comfort zone? Well, you know, at that point, we will, we would play what the music of that time. So uh, it was accepted because we were playing what the people wanted to hear in the VFW Lodge that we were playing, you know, or... Um, some high school uh, uh, homecoming. So we, we, we uh, just like the old days, people say, look out and see what the audience looks at, you know, and you, you know exactly where to go. So we, if, uh, so that's what we, uh, that's what we did. You know, we played what they wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. uh, we wouldn't force anything on the people. Uh, you know, if it's a uh, God, if it's temptations or, you know, if it was the, uh, the OJs, or they're gonna—that's what they're gonna get because we know uh, we we know how to work an audience, and I don't mean that in a derogative way. And still today, we know how to work an audience because we go out, we look, and say uh, in a romance, "Hey, take that out of there. Take this mm -hmm. song out. Take this song out. The song because it'll, it'll give a law, right? Or right. We're working with uh, an orchestra, then we'll say, "Well, let's put this in." Because it'll keep it, 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 uh, it gives it that uh, feel, it gives it that uh, tone, it gives okay. it the tone of where, where we're coming from. So we'll add something that's jazzy, jazzier. Yeah, so it's always been like that. Uh, the only time we got like, uh, who are these guys, is we were in East Germany. And they had the album, but it was all these dance remixes. And that's what they were hearing on radio. That's so what they were used to. <laughs> so when we got up to play, they were like, huh? <laughs> they were used to write the whole the dance. That was it. And so that, that felt awkward and bad. But uh, I presume today the same people, they've caught up. But that was it. That was the only time. Full disclosure, I'm going to just speak for all the folks. Depending on how old you are, you all you have a dummy moment with Cool in the Game. I feel like people who were maybe my generation, like 80s, 80s, 90s babies, it's a moment when you you heard Summer Madness and you were like, who is this? You know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. 
Can I can I relate a story about some yes. of it? Yes, yes. We had uh, Jungle Boogie, and of course that went up charts, and so we, we put out Spirit of the Boogie, mm-hmm. and it's in it's summer, and I, I think we're in Illinois, so a disc jockey turned it over because it was a B side, it was the B side of Spirit of the Boogie, he turned it over, and the rest is history. I mean, we had two songs going up the charts together. That's unusual, you know, go, especially then. Was it shocking that something that mellow kind of caught on? Absolutely. We were like, okay, you, it, with, with the two chords. Right. It was, shock, it was shocking. The two chords and the wonderful, Kalisa's wonderful solo. I have another question about uh, Summer Madness. Did you guys feel any sort of way about Bill Conti's uh, score of Rocky because there, there is, there's a song on that soundtrack called Reflections, which is Shoot. is damn near a summer madness. Well, I believe mm-hmm. in the movie, he he runs and works out to summer madness, but when you buy the soundtrack, he does right. Yeah. But when you buy the soundtrack, there's a song called Reflections, which is basically summer madness, just half a chord off, like. <laughs> the, the way the way that we write songs at the Tonight Show, or, or the way that I believe that the Barkays wrote their songs was basically put a song on, and get a derivative just like that song, and change one little part so that you don't get sued or whatever. But it's uh, it's so all ob- guys, the, the Barkays are like that. But the, you're talking about when he goes <laughs> to his room, he he puts on that little single, right? It's in the bed. You know, summer madness. You know, but. Uh, but did you guys feel so away? Like, were you even aware that Bill Conti had made his version of Summer Madness on that Rocky soundtrack at all? You know, I don't think we were aware, but you, oh. we, Cool and the Gang, has always been this real high spiritual group. And we really are. And if uh-huh. somebody does something, we don't say, we don't get litigious and say, okay, we're going to sue this person. As the years have gone by, We've been rewarded and awarded with so many different. We haven't gotten an Oscar yet, but right. I know that, that that's coming and the Hall of Fame is coming. And so will the Kennedy Awards and the, um, what is it? Is it uh, Rogers and Hammerstein or one of those? Right. It's, yeah. it's, it's coming. It is. So we don't, we've, we've never been the type to, um, Excuse my friends, the bitch that we didn't have this and this one got that. Okay. We just move on. Let's write some music. And it's it's still it's still like that. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money. What I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? 
With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I always wanted to know, at least the f- the first three records were produced by Gene Red. I assume yeah. that Gene was a, a house producer of... Motown. Of, okay, of Motown, and yeah. he came over to the, the light later. What was what was Gene like as a producer? Because later you guys started producing yourselves, but what was those yeah. first initial years like? Gene was a, a bona fide genius. Down, down to the sound of the band and uh, Bell Sound. That's where we recorded. Because that was the studio. That's where everybody recorded the Beatles at that time. And back then, the studios were so stark looking. Today's mm-hmm. studios are groovy with the lights. But we, the, the board then had the big pan pots, you know. <laughs> yeah. But um, Gene played piano. His father played for Cootie Williams. So he did have a big great musical background. Eugene was the uh, producer on Cool Jerk. Uh, oh, really? Oh, oh wow. Yeah. You know, he produced and uh, writ- had written a number of things. Him and George Clinton. George Clinton came out of uh, Motown as well. They were Motown mm-hmm. writers. I'm just finding out that he's also father of um, Penny Ford of Snap and uh, oh, wow. Sharon Red. Sharon Red, uh, yeah. Sharon, yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that Sharon Red and Penny Ford are are sisters or half sisters or that sort of thing so and sharon was an actress big time mm-hmm. she was in hair back in the day you know with gene it was he wanted a new sound and we had that jazzy sound uh and we'd go at rehearsal he'd go and manipulate the amps you know you know the, right. the tones mm-hmm. and things how it should sound and uh even with me even some of the breaks he would say, now, George, it is simple. You know, he went, brap, doobie-dap. That's all I want there. And live it alone. Right. And get the floor top. Brap, doobie-dap. You got the floor top resonating. And uh, he uh, came up with the idea before the Jacksons, uh, when there was a program with, um, was it Alice Toussaint? It was Soul. Okay. One of the early black programs. And he had us, uh, he had the um, filters, I guess you can call it, mm-hmm. of uh, Cool of the Gang's Saturday cartoon show back then. Really? Really. He's a brilliant what? guy. 
Yeah, back then. I think the show was called Soul. Okay. Yeah. Wow, I never in, knew that. In black and white and all that all that good stuff. Right. It was the stage was so small, they had to put me on the side. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as I said at the top of the show, what's really notable about you guys is the metamorphosis of the group. You know, mm-hmm. starting off jazz, adding more soul to it, and then, you know, and to this day, like as as a soul train historian, I credit uh you guys' second appearance on Soul Train as a pivotal moment of that show. It's the moment where even Don Cornelius admits to you guys that he never heard Jungle Boogie. Like the he basically said that, you know, he got the 45 the day before and he heard funky stuff and thought that nothing ever is going to top funky stuff. So I don't need to listen to the B side. <laughs> and you guys do Jungle Boogie. And I noticed as someone who studied every episode of that show, you know, the first three and a half years of that show was really sort of riding off the coattails of Don's connects in Chicago and, you know, the middle of America. So like a lot of Curtis, mm-hmm. a lot of, uh, you know, like Chicago era groups, some of them like older. And what makes it notable when you guys come on the show the second time and you do uh, funky stuff, and you do Jungle Boogie. It's it's as if the kids finally see themselves because there's a group that's their age or younger than them playing a different type of music that's not really based on Motown or based on James Brown. It's like it's it's clearly like a, a marking of new territory and, and an introduction of funk. And the way they're dancing is like their life depends on it. Like. I wish I, I had a song to compare it to now. Like if you put the song on the moment now and the audience just goes crazy, but what is it like or how jarring is it to adjust to different genres? Because, you know, jumping from funk to disco was such a hard adjustment and you guys caught a lot of flack. Like I, I was raised by uncles that was like, well, I remember my era cool in the gang, you know, whatever. So can you, can you talk about, what it's like to either sink or swim in in a time period in which a lot of your contemporaries are not trying to swim and they're sinking and you guys are like, nope, we got to go on and move. So can you talk about the period, at least the, 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 the everybody's dancing right before celebration, that disco period you guys had to go through? Well, we've always been eclectic. You listen to the music and it's thread over the years, you say, well, they're not following the scheme of what most artists do. This is the albums all sound the same, everything sounds the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were in London, Khalees and I, and we had an interview, and he said, you guys got cojones. And we <laughs> said, what are you talking about? He said, you don't stay in one niche. You're like, right. you do this, you do that. And uh, he said, most artists, they want to save their careers. And it's Stephen at one niche. We we've always played what we felt like playing. Uh, we always wrote what we felt like writing. So in those transitional periods, uh, it, it it didn't affect us. It, it it maybe affected the light records because the sales weren't there, but mm-hmm. it, it didn't affect us in regards to because we weren't making that much money anyway. But so we <laughs> so we just were on the uh, uh, down in the trenches. 
trying to make it work and putting things together. But we've always written different styles of music. So coming from uh, that soul R&B era, mm-hmm. it didn't affect us. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, we got JT, pulled him along, hey. and just started writing songs for a vocalist. And um, bingo, it worked. Hey, Questlove Supreme listeners, this is Sugar Steve. We don't like to do this, but we're stopping the episode right there. Please come back next week or look in your podcast feed for part two of our interview with Funky George Brown of Cool the Game. In part two, he talks about some of the band's hits of the 80s, his new memoir, Cool and the Gang and Me, and much, much more. Oh, and make sure you check out Cool and the Gang's new album, People Just Want to Have Fun. It's made by George and another QLS guest, Ronald Cool Bell, with the rest of the gang. See you next time. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.